Join the only roundtable podcast in compliance with five of the top commentators in compliance. Check out the rants and shout out at the end of each episode. Hosted by Tom Fox, the voice of compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Everything Compliance is now the award-winning Everything Compliance, having won a Davy Award for a top panel in podcasting. Hello, everyone. Uh, This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and welcome back to another episode of the award-winning Everything Compliance. Today, we're going to have a potpourri and plethora of topics. So, Jay Rosen, what has been on your mind? Well, uh, as this has been the year of the pandemic, and we've checked in a couple times throughout the year, I'd like to take a quick look at an update on uh, telemedicine, its demand, fulfillment, and patient satisfaction. So here's a quick look at how telemedicine is affecting providers and investors, as well as the growing acceptance of this service by physicians and patients, and unfortunately some increased criminal activity that we need to be vigilant for. Um, From McKinsey July 2021 update, early in the COVID pandemic, telehealth usage surged as consumers and providers sought ways to safely access and deliver healthcare. In April 2020, overall telehealth utilization for office visits and outpatient care was 78 times higher than in February of 2020. This step change was born out of necessity and was enabled by the following factors. First off, increased consumer willingness to use telehealth, then increased provider willingness to provide telehealth, and regulatory changes that enabled greater access and reimbursement. During the tragedy of the pandemic, telehealth offered a bridge to care and now offers a chance to reinvent virtual and hybrid and virtual in-person models with the goal of improved healthcare access, outcomes, and affordability. A year ago, McKinsey estimated that up to $250 billion, that's with a B, of U.S. healthcare spend could potentially be shifted to virtual or virtual-enabled care. Telehealth utilization has stabilized at levels 38 times higher than before the pandemic, and after an initial spike to more than 32% of office and outpatient business occurred via telehealth in April 2020, utilization's levels have largely stabilized, ranging from 13 to 17%. Similarly, Consumer and provider attitudes towards telehealth have improved since the pre-COVID-19 era. Perceptions and usage have dropped slightly since the peak in the spring of 2020. Some barriers, such as perceptions of technology security, remain to be addressed to sustain consumer and provider virtual health adoption. Some regulatory changes that facilitated expanded use of telehealth have been made permanent. For example, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services expanded reimbursable telehealth codes in 2021 for physicians' fee schedules. Investment in virtual care and digital health care more broadly has skyrocketed, fueling further innovation with three times the level of venture capitalist digital health care investment in 2020 than it had in 2017. Virtual healthcare models and business models are evolving and proliferating, moving from purely virtual urgent care to a full range of service, 
integrating telehealth with other virtual health solutions and hybrid virtual in-care models with the potential to improve consumer experience, convenience, access, outcomes, and affordability. <clears throat> so let's take a look at the next chapter of telehealth. Telehealth appears poised to stay and a robust option for care. Strong continual uptake, favorable consumer perception, the regulatory environment, and strong investment into this space are all contributing to this rate of adoption. There has been a quick evolution of the space and innovation beyond the virtual urgent care convenience. Innovations around virtual longitude care, both primary and specialty, enablement of care at home through remote patient monitoring and self-diagnostics, investments in digital front doors, and experimentation with hybrid online offline models will bring new care models for consumers that help achieve healthcare's triple aim. To fully realize the potential of virtual and can enabled care models, both payers and providers should consider these new delivery models part of the core day-to-day -day value proposition to consumers. We should look across three areas. First, increasing convenience to receive routine care. <coughs> Excuse me. Integrating e-triage solutions with virtual care to create a broader digital front door for healthcare that enables consumers to easily get what they need when they need it. Experimenting with virtual first health plans, the number of virtual first health plans grew from a one plan uh, universe in 2019 to at least eight in 2020. While these products are still nascent, they offer the potential of lower premiums and greater convenience in return for seeing a virtual primary care provider as the first point of contact. Number two, improving access, especially for behavioral, behavioral health and specialty care. Continue to expand the range of behavioral health offerings with potential to address provider shortages in many parts of the company, country. For example, 56% of the counties in the United States are without a psychiatrist, 64% lack a strong uh, presence of mental health providers, and 70% of counties lack a child psychiatrist. Expanding across to specialty care capacity, such as in rural areas where many specialties may not be available. And third, improving care models and healthcare outcomes particularly for those with chronic conditions or need of post-acute care support. Integrating remote monitoring and digital therapeutics with virtual visits, especially in value-based provider arrangements, where incorporating virtual health into their care models could improve patients' outcomes and overall performance. There remains one downside with telemedicine, as patients and providers' acceptance has skyrocketed, so too as potential profits. And you know what I'm going to say next. When there's money to make, the fraudsters will step right in. In September of 2021, the Department of Justice announced criminal charges against 42 doctors and nurses and nearly 100 other medical professionals for alleged health care fraud schemes that cost $1.4 billion in losses. The charges targeted approximately $1.1 billion in fraud committed using telehealth services. According to court documents, certain defendant telemedicine executives allegedly paid doctors and nurses, nurse practitioners to order unnecessary durable medical equipment, genetic and other diagnostic testings, pain medications, and either without any patient interaction or with only a brief 
telephonic conversation. Durable medical good equipment companies, genetic testing labs, and pharmacies then purchased those orders in exchange for illegal kickbacks and bribes and submitted over $1.1 billion in false claims to Medicare and other government issuers and insurers. In some instances, medical professionals billed Medicare for sham telehealth consultations that did not occur as represented according to the DAOJ press release. So in conclusion, the patient seems to be the big winner here, gaining access to convenience and safety of telemedicine, with the constant caveat that the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid will have a new category of fraud to keep their radar on. Tom, back to you. One of the areas you didn't touch that uh, I think about a lot is insurance. And in doing your research, did you see anything that would indicate to you one way or the other whether insurance companies will cover uh, these types of consultations or visits, or is that really still an open question? I think that's still an open question, Tom. It's really good to put out that, you know, the insurers are such a key player in this ecosystem. So it, it's something for us to look at. But I really wanted to stress at the end um, you know, that potential for fraud, that it happens so much in the healthcare system, and we definitely want to be on the look for that heading forward. So, Matt Kelly, what has been on your mind? Uh, well, Tom, I have been looking at SPACs, Special Pur- Purpose Acquisition Companies, and uh, there's some new research out about SPACs that raises uh, some pretty troubling questions about their general role in the capital markets and the trouble and governance issues that they might cause. We have two different pieces of research that collided at the same time about SPACs that are worth keeping your eye on. One was a very interesting legal paper written by two law professors, Michael Klossner at Stanford and Michael Olrogi at New York University. And they had published a paper in mid-November basically exploring the inherent conflict of interest that most SPACs have between the sponsors and the board of SPACs, and the sponsors are really the daily management team putting SPACs together. So you have them on one side and the conflict with SPAC shareholders on the other side that uh, because of SPAC's unique governance structure where they go public first, raise a boatload of money from shareholders, put that money in a special escrow trust, and then the sponsors go looking for a private company to acquire quite rapidly and then take it public, and you de-SPAC as a brand-new publicly traded entity. Isn't that wonderful? Uh, But because of that unique structure, sponsors on the board always have an economic incentive to say to the shareholders, oh, yeah, you should approve this merger. This is going to be great, Uh, even if the the shareholders are not going to get a good benefit from the merger that they're proposing. Uh, And there's this inherent conflict of interest. We can talk about that a bit. But at the same time that that legal paper came out exploring the conflict of interest with SPACs, which is not necessarily new, but the paper really brought it into very sharp relief, uh, another bit of research about SPACs came out from CalcBench. They are a data research firm that is based here in Boston. And they were looking at the number of quarterly filings to the SEC every year over the last 10 years. And they found that 
To no surprise, quarterly filings to the SEC had been trending downward for the last decade, from 2012 right through 2020. The total number of 10Q filings (coughs) received by the SEC every year dropped down from, I think, about 25%, from roughly 21,000 to 16,000, 17,000 or so. Uh, And then in 2021, that long decline in quarterly filings to the SEC, it spiked back upwards. We have bent the curve. We have more public companies coming into the United States. Isn't that great? Except when you look at what firms are coming and going by industry, it's very clear that the only reason we're seeing more publicly traded companies on U.S. markets and more quarterly filings to the SEC is that all of this abundance is pretty much coming from SPACs. And they're not even really filing any substantive 10Qs right now. They just file you know, these very bare-boned quarterly reports. But if you do the numbers, we have roughly 438 more SPACs that are public in 2021 than we did in 2020. And, okay, if you're newly public, you're filing four quarterly reports a year, 438 more SPACs multiplied by four, that's 1,750-odd new 10Q filings throughout the course of the year that the SEC is getting, that is more than the total that I mentioned a minute ago saying the total 10Q filings have now suddenly spiked up. They only spiked up by about 1,700, and we have 1,750-ish new filings from SPACs. SPACs are driving the resurgence in the number of publicly traded entities in in, in the United States breaking a long, long decline. Now, that's a nice thing in theory, but in practice, we still have the fact that <clears throat> these SPACs ha- are a governance fire trap waiting to catch a flight or to, waiting to ignite. So I have a lot of concerns right now, Tom, about what sort of governance issues we might see. Don't forget that when SPACs raise their money, They've got only about 18 to 24 months to go and find a publicly traded company. So the clock is ticking for these deals, and that is where the inherent conflict comes from. The closer a SPAC gets to that deadline, the more pressure the sponsor is in to get a merger and get a merger done now, right now. Because if I, the sponsor, if I don't get a merger done, I have to give the money back to the shareholders. And all of my own money that I have spent trying to put these deals together, that all goes away. And so we're starting to see these SPACs, you know, I guess maybe pop a gasket. That might be a good metaphor for it. Uh, We had at least one SPAC earlier this week that kind of derailed because the proposed merger came forward. And when there is the proposed merger, shareholders have an opportunity to take their money back out and say, nope, we don't like it. We're going to redeem our shares. And if they redeem enough money, the the merger no longer makes sense. There's not enough cash left in that escrow account to do the deal. So suddenly the merger unravels, the sponsor is losing his shirt, and so therefore there's here's the pressure for the sponsor to be less than forthcoming about the details of the merger. Because if it is a bad merger that might be a stinker for shareholders, well, the sponsor still has an incentive to get it done because they're going to be sitting pretty on a pile of equity. Or if it gets if it fails, the whole SPAC liquidates, the shareholders get the money back, but me, the sponsor, I get nothing. So we have these shareholder uh, SPAC board conflict of interest. We have SPACs coming into the capital markets like nobody's ever seen in 20 years. 
And uh, we can go on from there if you want, but there is this real chance that we're going to start to see a whole lot more governance meltdowns around SPACs, I think, in 2022, as that 18-month deadline starts to creep up because a lot of SPACs went public at the beginning of 2021. So by late 2022, they're under the gun. And uh, I think that we are probably going to see the SEC get involved with more SPAC regulation. They have been giving guidance about disclosing these conflicts. We're starting to see some enforcement around SPACs that some have not been forthcoming and have been misleading investors on the proposed merger. Sometimes the merger goes through. Then it comes out that, oops, we don't have any solid internal control over finances. And now we're under investigation for accounting fraud. That is the issue with Lordstown Motors, which went public by SPAC uh, a while back last year, and it's already under investigation. Um, We're going to see more and more of this, Tom, and I think that's going to be one of the big stories in 2022. Matt, it sounds like we may be uh, be able to revisit this uh, down the road. Uh, One area or one uh, potential uh, imbroglio you didn't mention is, of course, the Delaware Supreme Court. Yeah. And it's way early for a court a case to get to the Supreme Court, uh, Delaware Supreme Court. But have you seen anything that, uh, any lawsuits uh, that may be percolating their way up that have caught your attention? We have at least one lawsuit over a SPAC deal that has made it inside the court of the Delaware Chancery. And largely, it's the Delaware Chancery Court that's going to hear these cases because most SPACs are incorporated in Delaware. Uh, But so far, All we've seen are oral arguments for a motion to dismiss. The Delaware Chancery Court hasn't actually made any rulings specific to SPACs. And this is important because the SPACs are going to start arguing that they don't need any extra level of judicial review here, that regular corporate law and other previous Chancery Court decisions are just fine for SPACs. Uh, I don't think that is valid. And the legal paper by uh, Michaels, Klausner, and Olrogi, it outlines several different probable defenses we're going to see from SPACs that when you break them down, they make no sense. And I'll give you one example. Let's say you're the shareholder. You've been burned on the merger. You think that the sponsor was misleading you on the proposal and when you voted for it. So now you want to sue somebody. Well, if you sue If you file a derivative litigation shareholder lawsuit against the resulting company that has now despacked and gone public, that board and that public company are going to say, we we had nothing to do with this. We were not on the SPAC board. We were not the SPAC. We didn't propose the merger. Go sue the SPAC sponsor and the board directors who proposed all this, not us. Okay, so now you're going to try and sue the SPAC sponsor directly and the board that the SPAC sponsor had put together, which is generally going to be a bunch of insiders or other henchmen for the sponsor. Well, they're going to say, we have nothing to do with this. We're not the company. If you don't like the merger, go sue the company in the board today. So you're going to have the company that resulted from the SPAC merger and the sponsor who put it together pointing fingers at each other saying, no, you you shareholder, you have to go sue the other guy. And shareholders aren't going to have any recourse Unless the Delaware Chancery Court steps in and says, no, 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 this is you, somebody somewhere has to be able to get sued. Um, I don't know what the Chancery Court is going to say. There are other sort of legal defenses that Klausner and Olrogi put out in their paper, basically exploring SPAC's arguments. They're going to say, we don't need any extrajudicial review. 
but that's a nice theory. In practice, that's going to leave shareholders with no real substantive recourse if they do get basically screwed over by SPAC sponsors who have an economic incentive to do it because it's always going to be in their benefit to propose a merger, even if it's not a good merger. Uh, So there's going to be that to look for. I'm hard-pressed to believe the Chancery Court would be unaware of or disinterested in those kind of issues, but if the Chancery Court starts throwing out some really dud decisions for shareholders, I do think that the SEC is going to step in with more rigorous requirements for SPACs. Um, I don't know exactly what that might be, but the SEC has already published pretty regularly a bunch of guidance for SPACs, basically telling them, you can't try to get away with this. You know, you're going to have to disclose your conflicts of interest quite clearly. Uh, this SEC has only brought forward a handful of SPAC enforcement actions so far. Only one has uh, been settled, I think. It was against a satellite company where they had been misleading investors over the fact that the technology hadn't been tested. It hadn't worked. And by the way, the CEO of the proposed merger, he'd been flagged as a national security risk because he was a Russian national and he had to dump his job and move off to Switzerland because the United States didn't want him running a satellite technology company. And they neglected to tell all of this to the investors. Uh, So that's the kind of funny business that I think we're going to see more of. And I I don't think it's good. I have a lot of concerns about SPACs, but then again, it's going to be a lot of fireworks in 2022 and 23. So here we are. Jonathan Armstrong, what is on your mind? Well, I'm going to try and make GDPR enforcement slightly entertaining. I'm I'm setting the bar pretty low, I know. But uh, we've had a new uh, enforcement action this week against the Cabinet Office, which is part of the government and the centre of activity uh, for uh, uh, Boris Johnson, effectively, and his cabal. Now, the uh, New Year's honours system or the honours system, has been in place since at least 1890. And it recognises individuals' achievement throughout Britain and in the olden days throughout the empire as well by uh, awarding people recognition for their hard work in public service. And that's meant to be the aim of the honours system. But there have been allegations Uh, which have accelerated in the last couple of years, that the honours system is being used to reward people who pay political parties and also to curb dissent with those who oppose government who are rewarded with a move upstairs. Now, we'll return to that maybe in a minute, but the... uh, Obviously, everything compliance has got many, many awards. But this is probably the first time that uh, Sir Elton John has featured on the podcast. I'm sure it won't be the last. But the 2020 New Year's Honours list featured uh, Sir Elton, or to give him his proper name and the name he was awarded under, Sir Elton Hercules John. It featured the singer Olivia Newton-John, 
the cricketer Clive Lloyd, Sam Mendes, who produced the opening ceremony of the 2012 Olympics and a couple of Bond films, and the actor Rudolf Walker. So how is any of this relevant to GDPR? Well, it's actually a common problem that many compliance officers will have faced. What happened was that, as I've said, the award system has worked more or less hunky-dory since 1890, and the awards are honoured uh, are awarded by publication in an obscure publication called the London Gazette. But um, they've been updated, and the Cabinet Office went and procured a new IT system so that the awards could be published online. And they're published online now on December 27th, so just before New Year's Eve. I think on the assumption, sorry Matt, that no journalist is ever likely to be sober on New Year's Eve to report who's in the list. Um, so they're now published by convention on December 27th. And they had this new IT system, and they checked the IT system, I think on December 24th, and it was working. And there was a slight problem with addresses being included, but they found a way of preventing those addresses. And effectively, I'm oversimplifying, what it does is people put in who's going to get an award, where they are, what award they're going to get. And then theoretically, the machine should have pushed out the name and award onto the internet, but not the address. Now, we know from the monetary penalty uh, and, uh, notice, which was handed down this week, because it did get that serious, that somebody, somewhere, probably quite senior in government, tried to alter that list at very much late in the day. So on December 24th, they decided to alter the list. And then after those alterations were done, it was uh, sent, uh, the, the, the list was then sent for reapproval, assuming by that senior individual whose name has been redacted from the documents that the Information Commission has disclosed. But perhaps coincidentally, perhaps not, Boris Johnson at the time was facing opposition uh, from two backbench MPs, a potential opposition. Uh, Ian Duncan Smith, who'd been a uh, former leader of the party, I should say now Sir Ian Duncan Smith, and uh, uh, Bob Bob Neil, I should refer to him now as Bob Neil CBE, and there is speculation, at least, that they were late additions to the list. But whoever the late additions to the list were, and whoever insisted on the late additions to the list. It's the Prime Minister's call, effectively. He makes the recommendations to the Queen. Uh, what then happened is because that testing process wasn't gone through, because the, some of the people who'd done it were then off on their Christmas break, the list was published, including people's home addresses. Now, why is that a particular issue? Because the honours list also reward people who have returned from theatres of war. 
So as well as Sir Elton John, we had an admiral, a rear admiral, two air vice marshals, three major generals, and the head of cyber security at GCHQ, whose details were published online. Now, I happen to know somebody who was in that list. She found out that there was a security issue that involved her personal safety by two armed police officers knocking on her door at 1am on the 28th to congratulate her on the honour that she had received, but to offer to sit with her in her living room whilst, effectively, I guess, they tried to work out whether any terrorist organisation had picked up this mess and was hoofing it round to her house to do uh, whatever terrorist organisations do to people who've paid a prominent role in protecting the country. Uh, and rightly, I think, the Information Commissioner has got involved. She initially said that she was going to fine the Cabinet Office £600,000. That's been reduced to £500,000. And of course, the money thing is a bit odd, isn't it? Because um, the British public, including the victims, will end up paying the fine. And it's a shame, isn't it, that whoever was responsible for that late change in the honours list, particularly if the late change was to reduce opposition to the government by giving them an honour to keep quiet, it's a shame that they're not carrying the can instead of the British public footing the bill instead. So the good news is that we don't know of anybody who came to harm as a result of that late intervention from somebody close to Downing Street. And I can reassure his many fans that Sir Elton Hercules John is still standing. He's still looking like a true survivor and he's still feeling like a little kid. Matt, do you uh, have a comment or question for Jonathan? Well, I, I just wanted to tell Jonathan back when he said there will be no news reporters uh, sober on New Year's Eve to do any <laughs> reporting on this. You know, Jonathan, what do you makes you think that being sober has anything to do with newspaper reporters on the job? We are not afraid to <laughs> occasionally have to work while intoxicated. With the, that's why we all keep a bottle of whiskey in the bottom drawer. <laughs> Well, that's somewhat reassuring. A well and time-honored tradition. Before we get to Karen Woody, we're going to have a quick message from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. Karen Woody, what has been on your mind? Well, Tom, I have to say, uh, one of the stories that jumped out to me and maybe to a number of others uh, this week was that last week, uh, 
at the Digital Asset Compliance and Market Integrity Summit that happened in New York. We saw the meeting of, you know, what some might have thought would be the Clash of the Titans, which was former SEC Chair Clayton and current SEC Chair Gensler, and they sat down to discuss, uh, you know, regulation of the crypto space. And amazingly, they agreed on this idea that there needs to be regulation in that uh, area. So it looked a lot like some bipartisan agreement, obviously, given that Clayton was Trump's SEC chair um, from 2017 to 2020. And now, obviously, Gensler is the current chair. Interestingly, Clayton now actually advises crypto companies in the private sector. But the two actually really agreed on the idea that um, cryptocurrencies uh, and cryptocurrency tokens uh, that are largely used to raise money um, for companies or other entrepreneurs meet the Howey test. So this idea that there is a long-standing test that defines an investment contract. And if that test is met, then those tokens are considered securities under securities law and must be registered. So what is the takeaway here? Uh, really, I think the agreement between these two signals, certainly to cryptocurrencies, um, that they need to very much keep an eye on uh, whether or not they register their tokens and that there could be additional enforcement actions around that idea. Of course, we've seen the Ripple case um, that's still you know, on everyone's mind in some ways. Uh, that was uh, initiated by Clayton. So there, there could be a lot of um, additional regulation that we will see going forward in this area. And so the idea that we've now seen bipartisan agreement between these two chairs uh, suggests that, you know, it, it would be wise for all those in that area, in that space, and certainly anyone who's looking um, to get involved in cryptocurrencies needs to acknowledge that there, there will be likely a lot of regulation or at least hopefully additional clarification uh, on, on what is required for those, for those tokens and for those companies. I thought that was a fascinating um, situation and, and one that we don't see often where we see, uh, again, clear bipartisan agreement on this, on this issue. Karen, let me first ask you, uh, I don't think it's unusual to have past SEC chairs on the same panel, but I couldn't recall a panel of the current and most former SEC chair uh, talking about one topic. Is that in and of itself unusual or really it's something you've seen before? You know, it's a good question. I, I, I'm trying to think of any that come to mind. There's not there's not any level of animosity or anything, I feel like, uh, among those folk. I mean, and it's, you know, people sort of thought it was interesting that there was this agreement and overlap between these two. But I find that, you know, like I said, interesting. But there is such a revolving door in Washington. And both of these guys have been, you know, at Goldman or in, in, the, in the industry before coming to regulate it. Now Clayton's over helping even with crypto industries. So, you know, and query what Gensler might do after this post. And so it's one of those uh, positions where it doesn't behoove anyone to not get along with their predecessors um, much. Although I do think the SEC is more politicized now than it has been in previous eras. And so maybe there is a little bit less overlap or sort of friendliness on certain panels. But whether or not they, they have been on the same stage, I mean, this one was interesting because it was Clayton essentially interviewing Gensler, which I thought was an interesting way to, to frame it. But um, 
you know, I, I, I don't, I, it doesn't shock me, I guess is what I would say. Because I do think you see a lot of times where these people overlap at things like, at things like this. Let me pick up on one of the points you raised, uh, because that uh, really led to a, a question I wanted to explore with you, and that's the politicization of the SEC. One of the things I got out of this panel was not so much the broad agreement, uh, but that really the SEC, I've kind of come down to thinking, is a, is a conservative institution. And yes, they're here to protect investors and uh, others, but within that mission, um, you don't really see a lot of, of uh people outside the lines doing things that are very new and different, that there has been debate and commentary over the years, but that these two men got together and and they could have echoed each other. And so it really drove home to me that even if we do acknowledge the SEC is politicized, it's it's politicized in a very different way than many of our other government institutions. And frankly, I took away a lot of comfort in that, that uh, really no matter who's in in the White House, the SEC is still going to do its job. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, I it, it always is a bipartisan commission, no matter what, and they have to have some level of you know sort of interaction all of the time. I do think there are more sort of ideological litmus tests now prior to entry that there weren't as much. I think before, I think. It, you know, I can think of people off the top of my head who had worked on both sides of the aisle, meaning they'd advised a commissioner appointed by a Republican and a commissioner uh, appointed by a Democrat. And that, um, that I think, wouldn't fly these days. I think there is a little more of a, a split between the Democrat and Republicans in terms of um, ideologies. But at the end of the day, it's not acrimonious. It's not something, you know, that I, I doesn't, it doesn't, I agree with you that it is still sort of a um, everyone gets along well enough, even though they have you know some some differences. Uh, the other thing that that you raised that I also thought about was that there's uh, certainly uh, interpretations of SEC decision making, but that in many uh, instances the law that the SEC follows was decided a long time ago. And you specifically referenced the Howey test and that the SEC may see uh, new investment vehicles or new things, but they can apply very old tests. And that really, as a lawyer, gives me a lot of comfort that there's a broad and wide body of precedent that you can look at when trying to either advise a client or even decide these issues uh, themselves. Is that really typical in an SEC legal analysis? I think so. I, I do think crypto was going to really put the Howey test to its limit. I mean, this is a new, you know, it just decentralized finance entirely, you know, beyond even the SEC. I think other agencies are implicated in trying to figure out how to get our arms around it. So the newness of the type of vehicle and the structure and, and these tokens, um, it is nice that there are, like you say, uh, precedents that we can apply that are longstanding but some of these things might not necessarily be, uh, you know, this might be trying to square the round peg in some ways because I, I do think crypto will be one that's that gets very in the weeds. And I think you saw that from certainly the people at the conference last week who were equally frustrated 
you know, certainly by maybe the echo chamber of um, the call for regulation by Gensler and Clayton, but also just this idea that they don't feel like there is enough guidance. You know, I mean, you know, one of the, uh, I think, leading trade association sort of voices said, you know, register what? Like, these things are different. This looks different. And so uh, it's hard to try to march through this in sort of a typical IPO or other other ways we've seen securities register. And so I, I, I don't know. I, I, I do. I agree with you that the Howey test and these longstanding precedents give us great principles from which um, to jump off from. But I, I think crypto space in particular will be one where we will need, I think, more maybe than that in order to give appropriate guardrails to, to um, people in that space. And now we are to our fan favorites of shout-outs and rants. So we will uh, start with you, Mr. Rosen. Do you have a shout-out and or rant for us? Uh, I would be sarcastic to call it a shout-out, so I will say it is a rant. Uh, Tom, in an earlier podcast, uh, you referred to me as a gray beard, and I'm growing that beard in support of my New England Patriots and their playoffs aspirations. Um, I'll try to deliver this without too much commentary. Tampa Bay Buccaneers wide receiver Antonio Brown has been suspended three games for violating the NFL, NFLPA COVID-19 protocol. Uh, it seems that Brown was among three players who misrepresented their vaccination statuses. And a former personal chef of Brown said that earlier this month, the wide receiver had obtained a fake COVID-19 vaccination card over the summer. So in the wake of Aaron Rodgers and other professional athletes that are struggling with COVID and trying to tell the truth and trying to game the system, here's to you, Antonio Brown, brought over by Tom Brady, the GOAT, to be part of that Receiving core in Tampa Bay, you warm my heart, Antonio Brown. Out. Matt Kelly. Uh, Tom, I'm going to stick with the world of sports, but uh, spin it around to a shout-out to the Women's Tennis Association for having the guts to stand up to China and cancel their upcoming tournaments and other commercial deals with China over the uh, case of their women's uh, tennis player, Peng Shuai. Uh, Peng had been, I, I guess, disappeared uh, is the word to use. I say had disappeared or had been disappeared because I suspect that maybe this was done by force, where she had accused a senior Communist Party official and government official in Beijing of sexual assault. And then lo and behold, she kind of just disappeared from social media, from the internet, from the world, for weeks and weeks, as I understand it. And uh, finally, she did resurface to say all is well. A lot of people think that that is not true, that she was forced to put on a brave face by the government in Beijing. And the World Tennis Association had the guts to say, you know what, we don't believe it. We stand by our player, Ms. Peng, and we are not going to do business with China, which is, as they correctly said, a corrupt and thuggish and authoritarian regime. Everybody knows this. Everybody who works or deals with China in corporate America knows this, too. They just don't say it very often. Um, I am struck, actually, comparing the WTA's guts and stance here against China compared to Jamie Dimon. Uh, of J.P. Morgan, who casually made a joke the other week 
that he thinks J.P. Morgan will be around in 100 years, and that is more than he could say for the Chinese Communist Party. The Chinese Communist Party hit the roof over that rather flippant comment. He probably should have been more judicious in his words generally, but although I believe he is right. Uh, but then almost immediately, Jamie Dimon re- apologized, not once, but twice. Uh, so he folded like a house of cards. Uh, many other businesses have folded like a house of cards when dealing with China. And lo and behold, the World Tennis Association, the Women's Tennis Association, is not folding. They are sticking to their guns. It's probably going to cost them a fortune. But this is what sticking to your core values actually looks like in practice. So kudos to the Women's Tennis Association for standing up to China. Glad to see that they're doing it. Jonathan Armstrong, do you have a shout and or uh, rant for us today? I have a shout out for the European Public Prosecutor's Office. Who they? Well, they are a new agency that has been set up, as the name suggests, to uh, prosecute fraud, embezzlement that involves EU funds. Now, it's a somewhat confusing position. Uh, The uh, European authorities have had a body called OLAF that's meant to have been prosecuting fraud in the uh, European Union for many years, and some in Brussels say that it does nothing very slowly. But in contrast, the EPPO uh, only uh, came into existence on the 1st of June uh, this year, and they got their first conviction. So for a bribery and corruption prosecution, that's pretty quick work. They've said that they have already opened 400 investigations into fraud and embezzlement uh, across the EU and their first conviction is of a Slovakian mayor who uh, now has the pleasure of three years in a Slovakian jail for falsifying documents uh, to get financial support from the European Social Fund. So well done to the new tough prosecuting kid on the block. And I'm going to join in for my first joint rant and shout-out. I'm going to rant about Major League Baseball. Why? Because Basic Labor Relations 101 says, if you're going to lock somebody out, do it when there's a reason to do so, i.e. to stop work. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we're more than two months from the start of spring training and three months from the start of the baseball season. So what did the billionaire owners do well they locked out the millionaire players you want to put some pressure on people how about a lockout before spring training or how about a lockout before the season starts uh in the history of labor relations major league baseball has made probably four of the top five bonehead moves of all time uh the last strike we had was 26 years ago in 94 and 95 and here we are again my shout out however goes to houston chronicle sports columnist brian smith who said of the lockout by the owners, why don't you take this opportunity to fix baseball? Baseball is broken. It is now number three in uh, the top four professional sports in the United States. It needs a serious reset for the 2020s and beyond. It ain't about money. It's about the quality of the game. So thanks, Brian Smith, for reminding us the game's broken. The owners broke it. They need to fix it. Karen Woody, do you have a shout out and or rant for us? I do have a shout out. This weekend, I had the opportunity to go to Indianapolis 
um, because my son is really into cars, and so we did a tour of the Indianapolis Speedway. And I have to say, my shout out is to that entire institution. It was so fascinating to get a lap around the track, look at the museum, and realize how much history is there. I have to confess, I wasn't, I'm not into race cars or into racing, but it was a fantastic excursion and one that left all of us very happy. So uh, my hats are off to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and the fantastic tours they get. Well, uh, another great episode in the books for our listeners. Uh, stay tuned because later this month we will have our first annual year-end wrap-up. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks very much. Thank you for listening to the award-winning Everything Compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. I hope you will join us for our next episode where we do our first year in wrap-up. In this year in wrap-up, the gang will look at their favorite stories over the past year and their favorite rants and shout-outs. Karen Woody has a new podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network where she looks at the history of insider trading but through the eyes of some of her students in her class. It's a very unique podcast and I know you will enjoy it. Also check out Hidden Traffic, the newest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network where Gwen Hassan looks at human trafficking and modern slavery. Thanks again for listening and we look forward to visiting with you again. podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.